Hey, everybody. Welcome to AM Live. Thank you for joining me on this Sunday. Hope things are going well with you. It's a nice day where I am. So I hope uh, it's a nice day where you are too, wherever you are. And uh, if it is a nice day where you are, then thanks all the more for joining me because uh, there's so many things you could be doing. So thanks for being here. Um, well, look, when it comes to Ukraine, things are bleak, I think. Maybe someone has a different opinion, but things are looking pretty bleak. First of all, you have Sweden and Finland making moves to join NATO, which I think would be a disaster for the planet, for reasons we can discuss. And meanwhile, you have no signs of diplomacy whatsoever. You have the U.S. flooding the country with billions of dollars of, uh, in weapons, which does seem to be actually having an impact um, in helping Ukraine fight Russia. But I think ultimately the result will be the same because of Russia's position, because of the fact that Russia just has overwhelming military force. No matter how many weapons you pour in there, I just think ultimately Russia will prevail. And the question for me is how many Ukrainians will needlessly lose their lives? And when I say needlessly, that's because the diplomatic options on the table to me are reasonable. Ukraine pledging neutrality and finding some kind of solution for the Russian-speaking people of Ukraine who have not wanted to live under a coup government imposed in 2014 that doesn't respect their rights and allies with neo-Nazis like the Azov Battalion. There has to be a solution to that. But uh, there's no sign of any kind of move towards that solution. There are reports that Boris Johnson instructed Zelensky not to negotiate with Russia because essentially the, the Western powers want to use Ukraine for a proxy war, and Zelensky has... Insofar, if that report is true, Zelensky has certainly followed orders. And in the West, inside the U.S., there's virtually no opposition to the proxy war agenda coming from inside the, the ruling party that is carrying it out. And that was recently illustrated with a series of vote, two votes inside the U.S. Congress, where Congress over, overwhelmingly approved first the Lend-Lease Act, which is a, a World War two-era uh, piece of legislation that got the U.S. involved in World War II, and uh, which basically allows for the U.S. to be even more speedy in transferring U.S. weapons to Ukraine. It just speeds up that process. That's what the Lend-Lease Act effectively does. And that was followed by another uh, measure, $40 billion in spending earmarked for Ukraine, the bulk of that going to weapons. And amazingly, every single Democrat, including every single member of the, of the Progressive Caucus, which also includes every single member of the squad, voted for this measure, even though the bulk of the money that it authorizes goes to the weapons contractors in the form of billions of dollars, $8.7 billion alone just to replenish the U.S. military arsenal for weapons that are going to Ukraine along with billions more for through other provisions. Um, and the CIA. The CIA is also a recipient of this $40 billion spending package, although we don't know for how much because that was kept secret from us. So that's what's been happening on the Democratic progressive side of the aisle. Unanimous support for deepening a proxy war and zero voices of dissent. And for me, it's just one more tragic outgrowth of the Russiagate era where in the name of ostensibly defeating Trump, 
Democrats are expected to get behind every single piece of legislation and every single talking point that is deemed to be, quote, tough on Russia. And the Ukraine proxy war is just the latest extension of that. It has dominated Democratic politics for five years. That's why they first went all in on this conspiracy theory about Trump-Russia collusion. When that failed, they immediately impeached Trump when he briefly froze some weapon sales to Ukraine. And yes, the allegation was that he was doing so for political purposes. But a major aspect of that was also this claim, as Adam Schiff said when he was on the floor of the House uh, leading the fight for Trump's impeachment, he said that we, we aid Ukraine so that we can fight Russia over there. We don't have to fight them here. And what Schiff was saying accurately is that the U.S. is using Ukraine for a proxy war. That was two years ago. And now the proxy war has gotten even worse with Russia deciding to military intervene to end the proxy war. And the space for dissent inside the Democratic Party just doesn't exist. It's not there. Everyone's behind it, even members of the squad, even though these measures go against everything they purportedly stand for, which is spending billions of dollars on weapons contractors instead of instead of social spending at home. And not to mention literally threaten, threatening the end of human life. I mean, that's ultimately what we're talking about here is, you know, for all the dangerous consequences of flooding Ukraine with more weapons, just prolonging the proxy war, uh, leading to more Ukrainians being killed, uh, creating a huge uh, market for weapons. And that's already being, it's already happening. And we just saw the Washington Post come out with an article a few days ago warning about this, that basically there's no oversight at all of all these U.S. weapons going in to Ukraine. And even before Russia's invasion, Ukraine was a huge hub of arms trafficking. So you can imagine the situation now with untold billions of dollars worth of military equipment being sent there. Um, so on top of all those dangers, you also have the threat of, you know, which gets worse, by the way, now with Finland and Sweden possibly joining NATO, you also have the possibility of direct military confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, which ultimately threatens a nuclear holocaust. And progressives, instead of voicing concerns about this, instead of doing something to stand up to it, are fully in lockstep. And that, to me, is an outgrowth of them fully embracing Russiagate for five years and failing to challenge any of it under the superficial belief that somehow this meant standing up to Trump. When, by the way, it should be said, all of this is an extension of the Trump administration's agenda. Because no matter whatever nice things Trump said about Vladimir Putin in public, in practice, his administration's policy was to radically escalate tensions with Russia. That's why Trump tore up two very vital Cold War treaties, the INF Treaty, which had eliminated an entire class of nuclear weapons, and that allows the U.S. to now rebuild weapons that are aimed at Russia, and also the Open Skies Treaty, which allows both the U.S. and Russia to patrol each other's territory to make sure that they're not building up uh, offensive weapons. And so Trump tore up those treaties. Him doing that was a major factor in this war in Ukraine because before the war, Russia put up proposals that would address these arms control issues, and Biden essentially ignored the heart of them. And so part of why Russia is invading, I think, is to basically use Ukraine as leverage so that it can get those arms control deals restored, because not having them is an existential threat to Russia, and thus to the world, because Russia has nuclear weapons. But all this is completely absent from the progressive agenda. All of it is completely absent, and everyone is in lockstep with Joe Biden and the neocons in the, in the Republican Party, 
who want to use Ukraine for a proxy war, even despite all the dangers. So it's a pretty surreal moment to be in for a progressive in the United States. And that's my opening rant. So let's take some calls. And the first caller is Clabby, if you're there. And to speak, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. Uh, yeah. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, well, yeah, dark day for us here in uh, Scandinavia. I was just wondering, it seems to me that the country that has been pushing the hardest for us to join NATO is, uh, is the UK. Boris Johnson has been here and stuff. And, uh, I was just wondering what you think their main drivers for doing that may be. Thank you. I think two things. One, in Russia, there's uh, sorry. In the UK, there's this just strange hatred for anything Russia. Uh, inside some members of the establishment, it's just a big part of their culture. From what I've experienced firsthand, um, you know, because I I've done stuff about Syria where the UK was heavily involved because because the because the UK is essentially a client of the US, and so the US got the UK heavily involved in the dirty war in Syria. Uh, I, I've I've come face to face with dip, with British diplomats, and um, their animus toward Russia and anything that they personally associate with Russia is just very very very. Uh, it's just harsh. <laughs> they, they seem to have a very jaundiced view toward towards Russia for whatever reason. And then the second reason is because the UK is the US's lapdog. The, the UK just does what the US tells it to do. It's a junior partner. That was made very clear with the Iraq war when the, the task of coming up with intelligence that could justify an invasion was farmed out to Tony Blair and he dutifully followed and We've seen similar things ever since. That actually happened in the run-up to the uh, Iraq War, uh, to the Ukraine invasion as well. When um, back in January, the U.S. gave Britain so-called intelligence about a Russian coup plot in Ukraine. Initially, everyone pretended as, as if it cl- came from the U.K. when really it came from the U.S. And the U- U.K. pretended as if it had found the supposed intelligence on its own, but really, it turned out later that, that was the U.S. telling the U.K. to come out with it. So. I think it's a combination of those two factors. All right. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Adrian. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to um, take this opportunity since I don't know where to send you fan mail uh, to just uh, thank you for the uh, absolutely indispensable work that you do. Um, and uh, I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this with uh, such fulsome praise when we're we're talking about uh, world affairs. But anyway, I just wanted to take the opportunity to do that. So thank you very much. I uh, I uh, just think you're uh, one of the most lucid and uh, reasonable and uh, yeah, really indispensable kind of people that are commenting on uh, you know political affairs at the moment. So thank you very much. Thank you. That's really kind. Thank you. Oh, okay. That's it. All right. Sam, you are up. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing, man? Hi, Sam. How's it going? Uh, you know, it's funny. I actually, I actually have forgotten that you, you had a back and forth with, uh, with, uh, the British, uh, UN, um, whatever they're called. The, uh, the U, the, 
you the British ambassador to the UN when he was uh, when you were talking about your investigation, and then he was his evidence was against you with something about Twitter, and you're like, yeah. really? That's, that's yeah. So that's you're coming at me with yeah, yeah. So I I've done two presentations at the UN Security Council about the OPCW's Syria cover-up scandal. And both of them are very detailed. A lot of, you know, a lot of evidence that I've marshaled because I've gotten leaks about this explosive cover-up of the OPCW's investigation of the Duma probe, right? Which showed that in reality, there was no chemical attack in Duma, but the OPCW doctored that probe to claim otherwise. And so when I present... In one of my presentations at the UN, the UN, the uh, British ambassador to the UN responded, not by addressing anything I said, but just said that saying that we should dismiss me because of the contents of my Twitter account. That's what he said. Um, and he didn't ex- he didn't even give an example of what on my Twitter account he was so offended about. But that's the level of discourse that they're at, that we're going to ignore all this evidence, which comes from the OPCW, because the British ambassador apparently has negative feelings about my Twitter account, which I'm sure he's actually never seen. It was just a way for him to avoid dealing with what I was actually presenting when it comes to the LCW. But anyway, that's, that's the level that they're at. Well, I mean, I, I hope you enjoy having your phone tapped because I'm sure that they've been doing it since, but I always laugh at the, at the fact that no one ever acknowledges that first off the guy who, who created the OPCW was, was literally threatened by, by Bolton. And Yet no one acknowledges that the last time something of uh, the chemical attack happened was it two or three U.S. government officials who didn't even, you know, say what agency they belong to shows up to the OPCW and then they have a meeting with this guy and you could tell. I mean, the the current director is like, you could tell when you were giving your evidence he was very uncomfortable and very nervous. He was not like he couldn't say no, this is not true. He was like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna have to have this as a private conversation now, and it's like, oh, okay, so. There's obviously truth to this if you're, you know, shaking the way you are. In terms of the Ukraine thing, though, I mean, Aaron, let's let's be honest, man. I mean, I can't see any problem with sending large amounts of wep- uh, of money and weapons to another country with very little oversight and the CIA running it. I mean, they have a great track record, Aaron. I mean, you're talking about them arming the Mujahideen and freedom fighters in Libya and freedom fighters in Syria. And you, I mean, can you tell me that that ever backfired in any way on us? <laughs> no, exactly. I, I, but, I, I can't but, think of one. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's just crazy. Think of the am- amnesia it takes to ignore all these recent examples that have been so catastrophic, as you mentioned them: Afghanistan, same with Libya and Syria, the exact same playbook. The CIA uh, flooding a country with billions of dollars worth of weapons, always working with extremists because that's who is willing to you know be in, be an insurgent force. And the same thing with Ukraine. Now, in Ukraine, there is an army there, so it's a little bit different. But the Azov Battalion, which is neo-Nazi, is a significant component of the Ukrainian military. And there's no doubt that they're getting NATO weapons as well. They've gotten NATO training in the past. There's no doubt that Azov and other Nazis are getting these weapons as well. So it's not just going to your average Ukrainian soldier who is just there to defend their country. It's also going to militias who are there for ideological reasons, which is that they want to spread the cause of far-right nationalism and neo-Nazism. That's just a fact. And we know what what happened in Libya and Syria and Afghanistan when the U.S. did similar things. It it was a disaster. But yeah, we're not allowed to talk about that. No, no, Aaron. These are are, uh, uh, rebels or uh, what is it they they say? uh, 
conservative rebels or far right groups. You know, they're uh, you know like when Syria was rebels, and then it was like, okay, well they're they're moderate rebels, and yeah. these guys were on the you know who are freedom fighters. I'm sure soon enough it's going to be they're, 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 these Azov guys are moderately freedom fighters. I don't really see the problem. Uh, yeah. I don't want to take up too much time, but I just want to say, always love the work. Keep it up, man. And I uh, can't wait to, you know, chat with you guys tomorrow uh, on After Useful Idiots because uh, I, I would love to bring up different topics. But um, anyway, Sounds I want to keep the queue going. So take care and keep up the great work, man. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Maximilian. Yo, what's up, Aaron? What's going on? Uh, so I was a lead organizer for BDS at my university a few years back. And uh, I'm familiar with sort of your work and like the pro-Palestine stuff from that documentary Discordia. And uh, I just wanted to ask what you think, because at least in my circles, I'm noticing a lot of people who are pro-Palestine, who are basically, you know, pro-proxy war in Ukraine. And I just wanted to ask what you think the reason is for that, uh, for this phenomenon. Like here in Canada, we even have a conservative leadership race where this guy, Patrick Brown, who's pro uh, no-fly zone, you know, he's also saying that Ukraine is occupied like Palestine is occupied. Hmm. And I'm just seeing this weird, like, flippant discourse that's going on. And I was wondering what your opinion is on that. Yeah, well, look, a similar thing with Syria as well, where I don't think it was a majority, but there was a faction of people who claimed to support the Palestinian struggle for freedom, who also supported the dirty war, who supported the insurgency that the u.s and its allies supported in syria and that just um look it's it's a tough one palestine is such a clear-cut issue that it's just impossible now to be to call yourself a progressive and um support israel i mean that there was one that was once the case i mean i grew up uh, in a very small minority of people in, in my circle, in my sort of like Jewish progressive upbringing who um, did not support Israel. But that's changed now. I mean, pretty much everyone now supports Palestinian rights because it's just so glaring what Israel is doing. And the propaganda has finally crumbled. In, in the case of Ukraine and, and Syria, uh, unfortunately, the propaganda has been very successful in convincing people, some people, that by getting on the side of the CIA and the U S government and their allies that somehow they're on the side of, of freedom and uh, people fail to recognize that the occupation of Palestine is a part of the same imperial system that is leading to the proxy war in Ukraine and also the dirty war in Syria. I mean, that's why um, that's why Israel has actually helped arm the Azov battalion for the last eight years. There was a group of Israeli activists who tried to petition the government to stop doing that. And that's why inside Syria, Israel funded and armed the same sectarian death squad that the U.S. was supporting, because Israel is a uh, key part of uh, of the hegemonic U.S. system. And it sort of acts as a client state and does the U.S.'s bidding. And that's why it's on the U.S.'s side inside Syria and inside Ukraine. But people fail to make that connection because I think the propaganda has been so sophisticated. And also, I think, you know, if you're a Palestinian, right, it's totally understandable that your sole concern is going to be the liberation of your homeland. And so when you see how difficult it is 
to dissent on other issues like the Ukraine proxy war or the Syria dirty war, it's you're going to have to make a choice because if you start speaking out on those issues, then you're going to face even more antagonism and you're possibly going to alienate people you want to reach to your cause of helping to free your people. So I understand for Palestinians why it can be a difficult choice because they're already in a really, really tough situation. And now if they adopt a position that's even more marginal, it's going to make things even more difficult. So I get it. But I mean, overall, just to give you a broad answer, I, I think it's just the, the power of our propaganda system. It's, it's failed now, finally, when it comes to Israel, but it's succeeded in many cases when it comes to proxy wars like Ukraine and Syria, if that makes sense. All right. No, thank you. Thank you for your insights. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You too. All right. Alex. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. All right. Hi, Aaron. I'm a Ukrainian. I have family in Ukraine and I'm, I appreciate the work that you do. And I'm, I want to talk about the Ukrainian far right because I think a lot of people really don't understand, like on either, either side of the issue, how the Ukrainian ultra-right works. And that includes the neo-Nazis. Because you know how you have folks like Timothy Snyder saying, you know, there's no Nazis. There's only, they only make up like half a percent to like maybe at most two and a half percent of the population. But yet he doesn't understand why then, and if that being the case, why have they, why do they have so much power over Ukrainian politics? Even though they're like two and a half percent. I mean, because practically, if you follow the day to day issues of Ukraine for the past eight years, I mean, it really does seem like the country's been run by neo Nazis. And I, I don't know what, well, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, I mean, look, the, uh, the reason why is because they, they were the muscle behind the Maidan coup in 2014. The Maidan coup in 2014 was not the peaceful protesters who, who, who started the Maidan protest, you know, that to me was a genuine, I mean, you can tell me your experience, but, but the Maidan protest that started out in 2013, in late 2013, were, that was a genuine movement for democracy and against corruption and wanting to be closer to the West. That was genuine, but it got co-opted as often happens, especially where the U.S. is involved. It was co-opted by the far right and they turned Maidan into a regime change operation and the muscle behind that was fascist. I mean, they've openly bragged about it. In one of my articles on this, I've, I linked to a video clip from a fascist organizer who says that without us, Maidan would have been a gay pride parade. And I think he's right because they turned it from a, you know, like peaceful to violent. And uh, that to the U.S. always encourages when it needs to overthrow a government or, or destabilize a country. So, and, and we saw that after they, after the coup succeeded in 2014, the new government was overwhelmingly dominated by far-right fascist figures, including in key security posts. They, their first move was to ban the Russian language. That was the first state action under the new coup government that led to things like the uh, massacre in Odessa, where anti-Maidan protesters were burned alive. And of course, nobody was ever punished for that because the new government supported it. So I think that's the answer. It's just, yes, they're not... Population-wise, the Nazis don't dominate the country, but in terms of the power behind the government that the U.S. is supporting, uh, it's fascist and it's far-right and it's Nazi, and that explains their influence. I want to just add, I remember during the 
you know, 2019 Ukraine election, because I was watching it with quite a bit of schadenfreude because I was watching the far right in Ukraine just like on social media, absolutely lose their mind when Zelensky won. They were absolutely horrified. Hmm. But in fact, but, and this is, I think, really important. And I don't know if you remember this or if you followed it, but remember uh, Poroshenko, who ran on a ultra-right hyper-nationalist platform, his his uh, slogan was Army Language Faith. And I remember when the way that the far right reconciled with it, uh, what it took away from the defeat that was that, that they only got 25%, which is that fundamentally nothing's going to change. And what, the, and this is like really prophetic. So they said nothing is going to change because we are the activist minority. Yep. And the, and the, we, and they would actually like in their Twitter handle and on their, on, on their, um, you know, face on their names on Facebook and Instagram, they would, you know, have their name and beside they would write 25%. I don't know. And like, for example, under their profile pictures, they would, you know, have their profile pictures and there would be this purple banner that say 25%. Do you remember that? I don't know. And what you, the thing about the far right is that they are extremely, is that the other thing is that they won the overseas Ukrainian elections. I don't know if you know that. The, I, no, I didn't. No. And that's and the thing is that they are also extremely politically active, and so they're called. They're telling their, and, and what, what you have to understand about the Ukrainian far right, and, and this is like kind of really confuse you, but they're mostly liberals. They're mostly liberals, and so when they speak, when they advocate on behalf of sort of the Ukrainian far right overseas, whether it be in Canada or the United States or in Britain or Germany or wherever, they present their case to be, you know, against diplomacy because they are dead against any diplomacy with Russia and any concessions towards Russia. And they've been that way for the past eight years. They're able to present it in this sort of liberalistic language, like this is about preserving democracy and territorial integrity and human rights and dignity. Yeah. Yep. And people yeah. fall for this, including folks like Timothy Snyder, because I don't think yeah. he's lying when he when he says there's no Nazis or that they don't matter. I don't think he he thinks he's lying. He thinks he's telling the truth. The problem is he's yeah. being fed by these like Ukrainian nationalists. Yes, and, Nine, like and, the far right. Yes. they're mostly liberals. Yes, and when people like Victoria Nuland brag openly that the U.S. has spent billions of dollars on you know so-called pro-democracy efforts in Ukraine. This is what she's talking about. This is sort of the um, the training that the U.S. provides to basically help far right figures speak the language of liberal democracy. Things like uh, you know uh, all the platitudes that are given to make it look as if you know Ukrainian fascists and, and nationalists are just people who, who love democracy and freedom. I mean, but that's they really what, do. But they really believe it. That's 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 what's crazy. They sure, really yeah. believe this. Yeah, and. Yeah. I want to just. I want to make one more point. I, I'm sorry if I'm taking up. I, I I hate to take up your time, but I remember around the time Zelensky won, um, there was a poll that was taken by a Ukrainian polling agency called uh, KMIS. Um, it's like the big. It's like the big polling agency, and Ukrainians were asked if they would be okay with handing over Crimea to Russia as a part of a broader peace agreement, mm-hmm. and 60% said yes. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem, Aaron. If you publicly say that. You will be thrown in prison for threatening Ukraine's territorial integrity, or you will be doxxed and killed. And in Ukraine, there has been, since 2014, 
an extremely aggressive culture of doxing. Have you heard of the website called Miratvarets uh, or Peacekeeper? No, I have. So, like, this is like really important. This was created right after, like, and this is like central. This is like st- Ukrainian state backed. It's this doxing website that's basically, you, if you see anybody who's sympathetic towards the rebels, they would get doxed and they wow. could potentially be killed. And you have to understand that people like me, we cannot publicly speak out for peace because we have, I have family back in Ukraine. And if yeah. I publicly speak out for negotiation or some kind of peace settlement where, you know, we're going to have to make some concessions, they could be killed. Mm-hmm. And people who have advocated peace are being rounded up and murdered by the mm-hmm. state. Well, listen, I've, I've certainly heard, heard stories like this, and I, I've heard from people in Ukraine in a similar situation. And yeah, it just doesn't get talked about. It doesn't get talked about. And, um, you know, when Zelensky won, I know there was a lot of hope that he would end the war. Whether he was ever serious about it or not, I'm not sure about it. I think he was. Well, what about the fact that his main funder is the same funder of the Azov Battalion? I think he ha- – I think uh, – you're talking about Igor uh, Kolomoisky. Yeah. I, I think that the reason Igor Kolomoisky funded these guys mm-hmm. was because – okay, there was a lot of protests, and like pro-separatist protests after the coup against Yanukovych. By the yeah. way, it's illegal to call it a coup because you're slandering the so-called revolution of dignity. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. No, it's literally illegal. Even yeah. though another poll I saw says that half of Ukrainians think it wasn't worth it. Like, so literally, you have like half of Ukrainians have opinion, political opinions that are literally illegal to vocalize. Yep. 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 So I think he just did it for self-preservation. To be honest, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it's not that he's a sympathizer. In fact, uh, after Zelensky got elected, a bunch of these neo-Nazis took a picture of him of. Um, uh, put it on like a scarecrow or like a, on a dummy and, you know, put red paint on it and dumped it in front of uh, the synagogue that he had built. So huh. he's definitely, he's, he's an opportunity. I mean, he's an oligarch. He has to do what he has to do to survive. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but one last point I want to make, uh, I want to make about Ukraine, but I just, I, I have to make these points because I just don't see anybody speaking about them. Yeah. Um, Alex, let me say, you know, voices like yours from Ukraine, in the West, we're just not allowed to hear. We you have to understand, hear. Well, I'm a minority now. There yeah. is a, the majority of Ukrainians are bloodthirsty for Russian blood, and rightfully so, given all the atrocities that have taken place. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand, but, but you have to understand, like, that we have, there has to be a way out, and Russia will not accept defeat. Uh, I think Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, no, is that his name? What's, who's the director of the CIA? Yep. Okay. Oh, William Burns, Bill Burns, yeah. uh, said that uh, Putin might. Sh- use nuclear weapons mm-hmm. now if the CIA has, been, cia has been right about the russian invasion why are people ignoring this you know yeah wait so what were you saying oh well sorry um, i think i interrupted you that's fine uh look alex you make a lot of great points and i, I really appreciate you uh you sharing them here and please uh, please call back in the future because i just as i was saying you know it's voices like yours from ukraine that we're not allowed to hear we only hear one side and uh what you're speaking to is has been the reality for a lot of people who have been silent so i really appreciate you sharing, sharing I'm, so, I'm so sorry i have to make one more point i i'm, I'm really sorry go ahead um when you if you were to, if you follow ukrainian politic far-right political discourse for the past eight years which i did sometimes if you were to ask them what you know what about the people of donbass the separatists what about the crimeans like 
you they obviously don't want to rejoin Ukraine. What do you what do you have to say to them? And the attitude has been and this has been the attitude from 2014 is that if they don't like Ukraine, they need to pack their bags and leave. But the majority of these people are very pro-Russian. So it's like they want the land back, but they don't want the people. They, they want democracy for themselves. They don't want democracy, not just for the pro-Russian population, but they also didn't want democracy for the 73% of Ukrainians who did not vote for this for the far right, yep. who yep. have been running the country right through the Zelensky administration. Yep, 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 yep. And, and you got to advocate this on our behalf, on the minority of Ukrainians who still want some kind of peace agreement with Russia, because you know if we can't we can't advocate it for for it publicly, like literally we are putting our families in danger. We could literally be killed. Um, there's a famous Ukrainian, a very famous Ukrainian blogger who's like the Ukrainian government has is trying to assassinate and is trying to extradite from Spain. What's what's their name? Uh, Anatoly Sharia. I think it was. Right. I think uh, Dan yeah. Cohen wrote about him on Mint Press. Yes, he did. He did. That's right. Yeah. Well, Alex, listen. Thanks so much for right. for calling. I know I, I can only right. imagine what a what a challenging time this is being in your position. So I really appreciate you sharing with us. So thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aaron. Take care. Take care. Okay. H L E. There you go. Yeah. Uh, you can hear me, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm calling from one of those two countries that uh, <laughs> just recently. Um, declared their intentions to join NATO, Sweden. And uh, yes, so what happened is the um, social democratic leadership, which is basically the government, they just decided that uh, (laughs) they're going to do this. And um, they have a very weak position as as a government because um, how it works in the Swedish parliament is basically you need a majority um, of the places in the parliament. And since no party is generally that big, you have to work as uh, coalitions. And even with a coalition, they couldn't pass the 50% um, majority bar. So they're usually very weak, but for this, they, it was fully their, their own decision. Um, and a lot of people have been talking about how unjust it was that there was no referendum for it. Um, I personally feel like even the referendum itself would have been like, it's just disgraceful to considering the history of this, the modern history of Sweden, because this is not NATO was a joke 20 years ago for us, but um, there are, I just want to point out that there are, um, there are two uh, red parties in Sweden, so to speak, meaning left or center left. And, one is the Social Democrats. It's a big party, and it has sort of like a left-right uh, spectrum within it. But then there's also the the it's called Vänsterpartiet. It's the left-wing party, which is actually the former Communist Party of Sweden. Um, they used to have a K in their abbreviation, which stood for the Communists. They have taken that out since the 90s, but. Their position was that they didn't want to join NATO at all, and that's that was expected. But the thing is, uh, so that's the left. That's basically the left of Sweden. And they, um, when this war started, they were totally, you know, gung ho on the anti-Russian uh, line of politics. And 
I told them back then that, I mean, on social media that, you know, you're going to, you're going to lead us into NATO because if you follow a narrative of this war that is NATO's narrative, well, you're going to lead us into, into NATO. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> and finally, you know, there's the irony here that, um, you know, the left, as in America here, it's been for the, for the last 10 years or so, it's been like, in terms of identity politics, things have been like, not so bad. <laughs> but in terms of actual, like, economics, capitalism versus socialism and things like that, it's been like, the socialist part of that, that um, sphere has been nothing. It's weak. And... Um, so the leadership of Finland and Sweden, they're both, um, they're female. So our prime minister is female and there's uh, Finland's is as well. So it's the irony that, yeah, it was supposed to be identity politics is so important. And I mean, it is important in some, in a way, but you know, this proves the limitations of it because yes, in the Listen, end, I, it's a system that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to wrap because we're, I have a lot more calls. I'm just saying I have to get to before we go. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I would, yeah, that's uh, just my final point. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. The the females that were going to make it so much better, they, they both in these countries, they led us into the um, into NATO, which is stands for war. So yeah, yeah it does. It, it, it's, it's a very yeah. scary time. And uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Who, who could have predicted that we'd be in this situation now? At least I couldn't. And it seems like there's kind of no stopping it. There's no stopping. And the question is, will Russia, I mean, Russia has claimed that they're going to take military technical measures to, in response to Finland joining NATO. And that, that's the same term mm-hmm. they use about Ukraine. So what does that mean? Is, is Russia going to open up a new front against Finland? I mean, that's something actually to consider. And it's, it's incredibly scary because, you know, Russia won't, won't do that once Finland joins NATO, but before joins NATO, that would be the window of opportunity. So, is this going to get even worse than we ever imagined? It's um, that's the situation we're in. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Listen. Thanks a lot for the call. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Hello, Aaron. I wanted to ask you two quick questions, if that's all right. Um, the first one I've been asking other people, Michael Tracy and Greenwald, if do you think there's any red line that could be crossed by the U.S. or NATO in Ukraine that would trigger um, a widespread anti-war movement? Um, because I asked Tracy, he basically said he didn't think that there would be one, or if there was one, it would be way too late, and it would be already escalating out of hand. And Greenwald had similarly skeptical views. So that's my first question. I mean, if you look at what the U.S. has gotten away with in Ukraine, right. a coup in 2014, openly using Ukraine for a proxy war for the last eight years. I mean, Adam Schiff said it. Lindsey Graham said it. Lindsey Graham went there and said, 2017 will be the year of offense. Russia has to pay a heavier price. Um, and then refusing to take diplomacy seriously before the war. So in terms of what could be a red line, I don't know. I mean, maybe if the U.S. gets caught red-handed in something incredibly scandalous and shady. But, you know, part yeah. of the beauty of, the, of it is that the anything that's detrimental to the narrative, the U.S. media just ignores it. Or they justify it by some oh, they justify kind of, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So The I mean, money's already out the window, so I don't yeah. see us ever stopping the money train at this point no. until whatever no. resolution there is 
no. finally arrives. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, it seems like that's a precarious balance that, that if the idea is to have this war for years and we're just going to fund it, but then we won't trip over any red lines and that that's going to be a balance that can be sustainable seems ridiculous. And uh, yeah. that leads to my second question, which is all these so-called progressives and uh, so-called humanitarians in the uh, squad, <laughs> who's going to make them a, have they, first of all, had they had to uh, answer for the vote or have they just essentially bragged about it and said how they're aiding democracy? And if they haven't explained themselves or justified it some way uh, in a way that acknowledges that th- their base doesn't want this, but they had to vote for it, who's going to make them answer those questions? Do you think that there's anyone in the media world at this point that they're even willing to talk to? Because, I mean, they could run to TYT, but they're never going to ask him a question like this, and they'll never talk to you, and they're not going on Jimmy. You know yeah. what I mean? So That's the problem. Anyone who would actually ask them the question, I don't think they're going to talk to. And anyone they will talk to just won't ask them the question. So all these outlets that have sort of used the squad brand to, uh, you know, market themselves and gain an audience, I just don't think they're going to ask the question because, A, it's not really – they don't really care, and B – to ask the question would be to raise an uncomfortable issue, which is that the squad is a complete, when it comes to foreign policy, which is such an important thing, the squad is a complete joke. I mean, imagine, imagine claiming to care about, you know, social services here in the U S and claiming to be anti-war and, and all this stuff and then voting for $40 billion for a proxy war that includes benefiting neo-Nazis and primarily benefiting the U S weapons industry. It's just, it's crazy. But yeah, so no, I don't think they'll ever be asked the question. The only squad member who's tried to explain the vote that I've seen is Cori Bush. And she put out a statement that said, yeah, I'm really concerned that this will enrich weapons contractors and possibly even lead to direct military confrontation. But yet she voted for it. So, so, <laughs> so, so she's laying out reasons to oppose the bill that she just voted for. Wow. And she said something about supporting Ukrainians in their fight for freedom and all that, you know, all that right. stuff. But yeah, yeah it's just... Um, it speaks to how completely neutralized the anti-war movement in the U.S. has gotten, that progressive members of Congress could feel uh, free to vote for escalating a, uh, and funding a proxy war. It's just, it, it's crazy. And it speaks uh, to how neutralized lefty media has become, ha, has, has become too. Because, because they probably accurately calculate that they're not going to face any heat for doing that. And this is their first real test. Let's keep that in mind. Like, you know, there's been trivial, not trivial, but other <laughs> relatively con- inconsequential matters that they failed on, but they're failing their first real test. And I wonder, do you think that their base even really cares? Or do you think, because if anyone's going to ask them the questions, it's going to be in the re-election campaigns and they go around stumping and they're vulnerable to, you know, actual people. And then someone might shout out a question or something. But do you think that the base of these progressives, do they really care? Or is it, I've seen a lot of outrage, but I have a hard time deciphering whether or not uh, yeah, that's these a great people question. are wrong and assuming that no one actually cares. That that's a great question. Them. That's a great question. We'll see. I mean, if they had a me- if there was a media that would a- ask them questions, people might care more. Like say, True. why are, why are you funding a proxy war when you could be funding our communities? If someone were to ask that question, that might influence how people feel about it. But part of the problem is, is we're not, you know, this, there's so much, this this war is such an insulated um, process that they're not they're not being asked those basic questions. So we'll see. But it's a great question, and I'd love to, I can't wait to find out what these candidates face when they're going back to their communities and trying to get their votes again 
and how people will react to them voting for to fund the, the, the proxy war. All right. I really appreciate your time, Aaron. Thanks again. Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Great Thank work, you. as always. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Anthony. Hey, what's up, Aaron? Calling from the Motor City, actually. So I have one of these phony-ass progressives here, uh, Tlaib, who's supposed to care about all kinds of, you know, great things. But, I mean, I just I, – I actually did. I shouted at a press conference. She had a press conference the other day, uh, flew in Raul Grijalva from Arizona to Detroit with uh, Debbie Dingle, too. And they're just talking about the environment and do-do-do-da-da-da, get the lead out of the water pipes caucus. I said, why don't you get the lead out of the progressive caucus? But, no, I shouted down at her press conference and said, hey, you're going to stop voting for the Ukraine war. She ran away. So the cracks are there for these people to be uh, confronted with reality uh, daily, but no one's really doing it. And, you know, it's like uh, even dang, I, I, I called in the C-SPAN this morning. I said, hey, 40 billion. What the hell is that? All they're doing is talking about abortion all morning on C-SPAN. I'm like, hey, 40 billion. What about this? I, uh, you know, I hate uh, terrible uh, Tom Hartman, but he always has Kana and uh, Pocan on. So I've already asked Kana and Pocan about the Nazis, their little Nazi problem in Ukraine. It's like uh, the cracks are there for us to uh, just keep confronting these people. And I think, you know. They're just going to run and hide. I've already seen it. Well, look, thanks for doing that. It takes it takes some courage to confront people directly. Not everyone is adept at doing that or feels comfortable doing that. So thank you for doing that. And that's exactly what needs to happen is these people need to be challenged on their own votes. And, you know, someone like Ro Khanna, who co-sponsored a bill to ban U.S. military assistance to the Azov Battalion and voiced concerns right before Russia's invasion about the U.S. escalated the conflict with more weapons. He's turned around and voted for everything that Biden has asked for. And I mean, to his credit, he's gone on. He went on Brianna Joy Gray's show, uh, Brianna Joy Gray's show, and tried to explain himself and didn't do a very good job, I think. But otherwise, there just hasn't been any effort to confront them. So the more we do that, I think the be- like the healthier this society will be in, in a very very sick time. Yeah, well, that's what's so funny about the the narrative around the Nina Turner endorsement. Oh, there were threats. It's like, okay, unless the threat was the CIA banging on your door, I don't want to hear it because it's going to make you look like a piece of work. Anyway, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, Anthony. Okay, Joshua. Thanks for taking my call. And uh, I just want to say, um, I want to start out the call. I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant, and then I'm going to ask a question. Um, my heart is heavy. I think everybody's heart is heavy. I'm thinking about the people of the Ukraine. I'm thinking about the global South. I'm thinking about the people in Buffalo right now. Um, hold on a minute. Um, you know, I haven't been, uh, fighting to believe in this flag for all my life for it to become what it seems to have become. Uh, I don't feel like I have my First Amendment privileges in this country. Um, I don't feel like we're much different than Ukraine. I feel like the people that warned about this were the same people that tried the Nazis in Nuremberg about the chickens coming home to roost, about deciding to pursue hegemony abroad and then protect your right to pursue hegemony at home. I think that's where we're at. Um, We can't predict the escalations. No one. I mean, it's a cyclone of terror potentially, for a lot of people. If they tell you they can predict that they're lying, that's what the CIA does. That's what they do for a living. And uh, the question I have for you is, do you think the CIA wants us to have our First Amendment rights? Because right now, I'm really glad we have them. 
because I can say these things, but I'm all for backing up with the Second Amendment here. And uh, we need a real third party. These are not representative of us. And uh, they're not going to win, but it's going to be painful. Well, look, I can't speak for the CIA and what their agenda is at home. What I do know is that legally there is a strong protection for the First Amendment. And I think that's unique around the world. And it's worth treasuring and taking and taking advantage of and using to its full potential and also defending it when it comes under attack. Um, and that's all we can do. You know, I don't, uh, I mean, there's so much we could speculate about, about in terms of what, what's going on behind the scenes that we can't see, but in terms of what's in front of us, it's, it's a very dangerous time for most with the proxy war in Ukraine, but not just there. And so, you know, all any of us can do is just do our best to understand the situation with the facts we have and, and respond with the best faith we have, you know, and it's, it's certainly a, it's certainly a challenging time. All right. So Andrew. Aaron, how's it going? Good. Thanks. How are you? Um, I'm doing pretty good. All things considered. Yeah. Um, the point I wanted to bring up and I, I would love if you, if you do know more about this issue than me to elaborate, but I'm wondering if uh, at some point here there will be kind of critical mass for a, a tax and debt strike, kind of like what happened in Greece uh, around the 2008 and nine financial fraud issues that they had. I think the EU, I think that was right about the time they got uh, admitted into the EU and the austerity measures that came along with that, plus the global financial fraud crisis really kind of shafted Greece especially hard. Mm-hmm. And I think I actually saw on, on an episode of uh, – Anthony Bourdain's show a few years ago, just a conversation with this random woman in Greece about, well, why don't you guys pay your taxes? And she was like, well, everybody knows they're criminals, the people who run our country. So why would we pay taxes? And I don't, you know, I think it seemed like widespread enough that it was a problem for um, the kind of ruling elite in Greece. So anyways, I was wondering, um, I know there is a debt collective in the U S they focus a lot on student debt. I've also heard them talk about medical debt. I wonder what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, I, there have been priests <laughs> that I was taught about because I went to a Catholic school in like the 60s that refused to pay their taxes or at least the share of taxes that went to war. Um, but, you know, it's obviously one of those things where it's kind of hard if it's not organized and public and in conversation, you'd feel alone and feel like easily targeted uh, trying to do something like that on your own. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was in Greece when all that was happening. It was summer of 2010 or 2011, one of those. And I can tell you it was, it was crazy. People were so organized, so angry and so determined to fight the government because they felt as if their, you know, their entire, all their livelihoods are being taken away and they'd been ripped off. And it was, it, it was, it was really exciting to be there to witness, although it was hard. People went through a really, really hard time. And in terms of whether that will happen in the U.S., I mean, certainly there's the there's the numbers for it. So many people are crippled by debt. It's such a major issue, and no one's offering any solutions. So you'd think that, yeah, the U.S. W- would be ripe for a movement like that. But, you know, so many things have to happen for a movement to develop, and it's really just a matter of it happens when it happens. Yeah, I think that's a good point that um, – that- I've heard people talk about before. I had a, a really good 
conversation with a guy named Modibo Kadali. He's nowadays an author, but he was a, a activist who was really present in a lot of the um, the black workers and and uh, kind of liberation movements of the '60s and '70s. And he said basically, there's really no way to like prepare, you know, uh, not prepare for, but no way to predict super accurately when something like that or some kind of mass movement is going to take off. But you, yeah. you can kind of see signs here and there, but you can't necessarily force it. I guess was his absolutely, message. absolutely. And I appreciate you taking my call. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Okay, Kyle. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um. I was going to ask you, I guess, uh, I studied mathematics a lot and in mathematics, we always have, uh, things we can use to, to check if we have wrong answers. We've got axioms, theorems, principles, corollaries, and all, all sorts of things that I never thought I would have to get into. But, um, in journalism, you know, it seems like all, I haven't talked to too many journalists, but as far as I know, you've got, you know, the five W's, the who, what, when, where, and why. But um, I'm just wondering how how often do you have to check to see if other journalists are uh, doing things correctly and how often can you actually prove them wrong? And, and is that what what journalism can be about because I see a lot of days there are a lot of a lot of articles nowadays just kind of point out other people as being wrong or pseudo wrong and it's just annoying. But I wanted to get your opinion on that. Well I look I've spent a lot of time trying to point out where others get things wrong. And uh it's not my favorite thing to do. I'd rather just focus on my own journalism. But sometimes when there's a dominant media narrative and no one is acknowledge- is acknowledging the truth and is actively and everyone's actively suppressing the truth. I think it's important to offer a corrective. I mean, RussiaGate. I spent so much time just kind of correcting where media was deceptively portraying the story and trying to give people the impression that Robert Mueller wasn't covering this grand Trump Russia conspiracy when the available evidence completely undermined that. You know, so I uh, I personally think that's an important thing to do. And there are websites like Fair fair and accuracy and reporting that does this pretty regularly exposes, you know, what media is getting wrong, but it's not how I personally want to spend uh, the bulk of my time. But yes, yeah, I think yeah. it's very, I think it's very necessary because it's, it's media narratives that, that help set the agenda, you know, and, and help enforce the agenda. And so uh, that does need to be challenged. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, before I go, can I give a shout out to three bodies? Sure. Go ahead. I'd like to give a shout out to the three celestial bodies, the earth, the moon, and the sun. Because tonight there's going to be a lunar eclipse where the earth's going to block out the moon for a little bit. And it's going to be uh, pretty awesome to see because it's going to be a blood moon as well. Wow. So I didn't hopefully know everybody okay, well, gets a chance to see that. Yep. It's going to yeah, be I'll... 930 mountain time. Okay. Uh, so you'll have to figure out your plus and minuses from there. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> I think it's 11.30 on the I'll East Coast, 7.30 on the West Coast. Yep. Check it out. I'll be there. I'll be there. Well, thanks for taking my call, Aaron. Thank <laughs> Take you. Care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, Jeff. Oh, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I just wanted to make some points. Uh, I think there's a sort of good faith way to explain some of what the, 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 you know, the squad's actions lately, and there's a more cynical take one could uh, uh, take. Um I would say that I suppose, you know, voting to 
um, you know, fund the war in Ukraine, or send arms to Ukraine, rather, um, I think it's because they've bought into this idea that it's a defensive war, uh, as opposed to primarily a proxy war. And I think, you know, you do actually see quite a lot of people on the left agree with that. I mean, I know your guest on Pushback the other day, um, Seth Harp, I think his name was, um, he was sort of in two minds about it, but he said, uh, you know, part of him was happy to see Ukraine get the weapons to defend itself. And I know Noam Chomsky in a recent interview with Owen Jones, he said that he, um, he, he supports uh, weapons transfers to Ukraine. Uh, providing the weapons aren't of, you know, such a game-changing nature that they would escalate the war, you know, just purely for defensive purposes. So I suppose the squad see themselves as, you know, they've, they, they've bought fully into the idea that it's a defensive war. They, they see it that way primarily, you know, they don't see it as a proxy war the, the way we do. And I think when you, when you adopt that position, you know, there's a lot of pressure to sort of put your money where your mouth is and, you know, vote for arms transfers to Ukraine. Um, that's sort of my good faith reading of the situation. My more cynical reading would have to call back to last year, where I saw a, a, a recent tweet by, I think it was either Michael Tracy or Glenn Greenwald, but it reminded me last year that uh, some members of the squad, not all of them, but some members of the squad actually voted uh, to send you know, military aid to Israel. Um, and that's quite shocking because, as you said earlier, you know. Yeah, that was the that was the that was the Iron Dome vote. All right, I think. Yeah. And that's yeah. when AOC uh, voted either yes or just present, and then broke down crying and claimed that the issue was dividing her community. Even though, of course, no one cared. It was just like she had basically been bullied by Nancy Pelosi, and she caved. That's what happened. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that that kind of yeah. annoys me. So, so that part it yeah. would probably say that you know that that's a, that's a more cynical reading where I would say, you know, they basically just follow the orders of Pelosi and do what they need to do to get on in Washington. Um, there was another point that um, I wanted to raise, and that was the whole issue of um, Volodymyr Zelensky being funded by Igor Kolomoisky. Um, I know Stephen F. Cohen. Um, back in 2019, I think it was, uh, he seemed to think that Zelensky was perfectly sincere in wanting to bring peace to the Donbass. Um, I know uh, you interviewed Richard Sakwa, your latest interview with him. He seemed to say when you asked him that he thinks Zelensky was sincere. Um, I have to ask, I don't know if you know the answer, was Zelensky funded by Kolomoisky from the beginning or I mean, for example... Um, yes, he was. Yes, he was. From the beginning. From the beginning. Pretty, okay. pretty, uh, of his political career, yeah. And I think Kolomoisky is also involved in the TV network that where, where Zelensky did his show. Oh, right, because I was just wondering if he'd sort of been um, co-opted by this money at a later stage. But that's very strange, because as you say, um, you know, Zelensky's first efforts were to actually reach out to make peace. Um, you know, and... Russia experts seem to think he was sincere in that. And it's, uh, you know, obviously you say the U.S. didn't have his back and, uh, you know, he even received death threats from the far right. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm very confused with how to view Zelensky, honestly. Um, it, it's, very, it's very difficult for me. Um, and also, of course, there's, um, I, suppo I suppose there's the Norman Finkelstein's question. I was reminded of it when I saw your interview 
on pushback the other day, um, the, uh, Seth Harp said that um, he's pretty sure Russia didn't, you know, um, it did have other options um, other than to go to war, but he couldn't sort of name any. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I, th I think me and you are probably in the same situation, to be honest. Um, it's well, hard look, to think. I mean, yeah, I'd like to think. I'd like to think that Russia had other options, that it did not have to go to war, that there had to be some other way. But if you're going to say that, you have to come up with what they could have done. And I've tried to say that Russia could have used its gas pipelines or it could have, um, you know, made a more vocal appeal to the world, including to the U.S. public, about the corner it was in. But, you know, it's, uh, it's I have to admit that, you know, it's not an easy question. They were put into a corner. And to just completely denounce the invasion and not take into account that Russia was put in a very, very bad position, I, I just have to acknowledge that. And especially when, you know, when I ask the question, like, what else could Russia have done? The answers, at, le at least that I've come up with so far, are, are definitely not dispositive. I don't think there's a convincing answer that Russia definitely could have done something else. I like to think they could, but I'm not going to, I can't mm -hmm. say even, like, definitively that they had. That, that they could. Yeah, I mean, I do think because NATO has already expanded to Poland and the Baltic states, and that move was a number of years ago, but it, on its own, you know, that, that raises the possibility of, you know, nuclear warheads, uh, you know, a very short flight time from Moscow and St. Petersburg. But Russia didn't respond then the way it has now. Maybe you're right when you said Putin snapped. I mean, you know, this has been going on for a long time, and um, actually I would like to say uh, Chomsky in a recent interview, he, he reminded me of something that I think has been drastically um, ignored, you know, and, uh, and that is that Ukraine and Russia um, supply a huge amount of basic foodstuffs to uh, the third world, to the global south. Yes. And being in favor of this war and seeking to continue it is actually a death sentence for many people in the global south. Absolutely. That's a really, really important point that does not get nearly enough attention. Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. Okay, Andrew. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to tie some things together and then see what you thought about it. Um, so from my perspective, the United States is kind of a, like a proxy state that's controlled by like the military industrial complex, central banks, and the corporations that are backed by the central banks. And the central banks are backed by the CIA, CIA-like CIA organizations in other countries and private organizations that are no-name organizations that are contracted out by the CIA to do possibly even dirtier things without that being documented. And I don't think anybody in the United States that pays attention to anything thinks that we live in a democracy. And so my perspective is that the, the people that are in control are having the war just for the purpose of having a war to ensure that the people, uh, the American people, the Ukrainian people, and the Russian people are in a perpetual state of discomfort and not uh, feeling disempowered so that we cannot uh, 
see what's actually going on, which is that central central bank, that central banking authority, which was created by uh, my understanding by uh, Rothschilds. Well, the the central banking families like the Warburg family came into the United States in 1910 and created the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve uh, is manned by Goldman Sachs, which is other banking families, the Goldman's family and the Sachs family. And the Goldman's okay. Sachs gives Look, out massive loans to the yeah. military industrial complex. So, Our, yeah, yeah, okay. So, well, look, I um, I don't, I don't, I don't totally share your view on on what's behind all this, but broadly, I do think that yes, having the U.S. entangled abroad and having a military industrial complex where. Uh, so much money is spent on weapons and contractors and all these horrible things. It requires having a pacified domestic population, which means depriving people of their basic needs, not giving them the essentials to live, uh, and actually um, having a, a class of people that were their only way out of their situation, whether you know to get an education, to escape poverty, is, is to join the military. So... That to me is the connection between imperialism abroad and, and deprivation at home, and um, and certainly our financial institutions and all that you're talking about play. I agree, play a major role in all that because they thrive off it, and it's all part of the same system. So, um, Andrew, thank you for the call. Yeah, great, thank you. Okay, I'm gonna try to speed it up a little bit because I have to jump off soon. So, Fahim, Fahim, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Oh, hi. It's, it's Fahim, uh, by the way. Fahim, hi, so, uh, no, no, no worries. A quick question for you. Uh, the $40 billion, let's say whatever, the $30 billion out of that or more uh, is towards weapons. So do you know how the uh, transfer works? Do we just go in and say that, okay, a javelin costs like $150,000 uh, that we paid and we take it out of our stock and hand it over to uh, Ukraine? Or are these new orders that uh, would be placed on uh, uh, like the Lockheed and the whoever. Yes, yes. Uh, it's it both. Is. It's both. So the U.S. is going to transfer billions of dollars worth of weapons in its stockpile. Okay. And what, whatever it transfers, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon will receive a contract to, to replenish it for the U.S. stockpile. And then they're also going to get new orders to build new missiles and, and new weapons to send over to Ukraine too. So it's it's everything. <laughs> they get everything. <laughs> okay. And finally, uh, one, one really quick question, and if you don't have time, you can talk about it uh, next uh, time. What the heck is the uh, definition of progressive now? Because I, I've seen folks say this progressive caucus, progressive uh, caucus, and in my own district, my uh, representative, who like Ryan Grimm described as progressive, and when he talked about uh, Russia occupying Ukraine, uh, he was sitting in Israel while talking about that. And I'm like, are you guys serious or uh, uh, what? So some other time, or maybe if you have a, a couple of minutes, uh, uh, I'd like to know how folks define uh, progressive. Is it's it, a what, great anybody question. To the left, anybody to the left of Ted, <laughs> Ted Cruz is a progressive or what? It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, you know, it used to mean something, but now if you have progressives consistently voting for Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, then how can you call them progressive? Is Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's like 
criticizing the proxy war in Ukraine and saying we should be spending this money to ensure that mothers have baby formula? Is she a progressive now? Even though, of course, she's like a far right uh, Republican Trump fan. Um, but you know, the, the people who identify as progressives have completely just tarnished the term. So it's a great question what, what progressivism means now. It used to mean something. I, you know, I still identify as a progressive, but I don't identify with the people who call themselves progressives inside Congress. That's for sure. But anyways, uh, that's it. I know you're short of time, but thank you uh, for taking my call, Aaron. Thank you for him. I appreciate thank it. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Okay, and 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 if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you hit to talk. And if not, we'll move, we'll move on to Lance. Okay, Lance, you're up. And Lance, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you have to hit to uh, to be able to speak. And if not, we'll go to Alex. Uh, I just wanted to answer, I think it was Jeff who asked if Zelensky was ever sincere about um, ending the the, proc- the war with Russia. Yeah. Uh, and just to answer that, uh, he actually... Um, I think it was, um, I think it was um, September or October of 2019. This was like right after the Ukrainian the parliamentary elections, uh, where his party won in a landslide. Yeah. Uh, he impl- he actually started to implement the Minsk Agreement. He said that he's going to allow for elections to be held uh-huh. uh, in the separatist territories, mm-hmm. and that's when the no capitulation protests took off. This is when the far right mobilized right. in the Maidan. And basically threatened a third Maidan if he actually went through with it, and that's basically. And then after that, you know, it all went downhill. Right. I think a few months later, his approval rating was like less than thirty percent. I wrote about this, and I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. So thanks for that, Alex. Thank you. And, oh, and one uh, last thing: if pe- yeah. uh, there's talk in Ukraine about right now about, uh, I think some, I think the foreign minister of Ukraine said that they're going to they're going to try to retake Crimea and the Donbass. If if they take it back, it's going to be a bloodbath, because the, yep. the Ukrainian far right sees these people as traitors who need to who need to move out. Um, you know, like when, like Putin could have like before invade. I mean, the guy's such an idiot. He could have called for an internationally monitored referendum in Crimea and in the Donbass, and you know, they would have overwhelmingly voted for Russia, which is why the inter- the so called international community uh, opposes it. Mm. That's a great point. That's a good point. And that's, so that's an example of what we talked about before is what were Putin's other options. Well, yeah, he could have called for a vote, for example. And um, yeah, but Putin's Putin. Like, he doesn't really care for votes that much. No, he doesn't. All right, Alex, thanks a lot for the call. And, right, thank uh, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate you joining me. I'll be back on here tomorrow morning for the Useful Idiots Colin show we do at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern time. And I'll have more on my Substack soon about Ukraine. I'm working on an article right now. And thank you, as always, for your support and for spending some time with me. I really, really appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.